This is Paul Heron, and this is episode 23 of the Unneasening Podcast. Fifty years ago, volume one of the Diary of Anna East Neen was released, a publication that brought Neen fame after decades of languishing as a minor cult figure, after decades of a vain war with the New York publishers and reviewers. It so happens that I am currently transcribing the portion of Neen's unpublished diary that covers 1965, the year before the Diary of Anna East Neen debuted. She had only recently begun to find a way to publish the diary without hurting those she loved, including her husband, family members, her many lovers. This was a delicate matter, and not only did she have to give the essence of her experiences without revealing the intimate details, she also had to get permission from those she wrote about. The first volume covered the years 1931 to 1934 because, as Neen put it, That was the most interesting period of her life. And as we know, Henry Miller and his wife June were big reasons for this. Miller is, in the end, the most important personage in the diary. So, it was crucial that she got Miller's permission to use her passages about him. Without him, the heart of the diary would have been cut out. Now, if you've listened to some of my previous podcasts, you already know that the decade-long Neen Miller relationship ended bitterly and was followed by years of estrangement. By 1965, they had only recently reestablished a regular communication, but it was a tenuous one. Under the surface still lurked the remnants of anger and mistrust. Their rapport was civil, not personal a pale shadow of the passion they had shared during the era that the first diary covers. Early in 1965, Neen sent Miller the entire diary manuscript, which was 900 pages long, and asked him to decide what part of her portrait of him stayed in and what didn't. All she could do was hold her breath and await his reaction. On February 11th, Miller wrote the following letter to Neen. Dear Annie East, have now read about 200 pages. The stuff about June is dynamite. Aren't you worried she might sue for libel and slander? You also report a visit together to the Rue Blondel. Didn't you make that up? I don't recall such a visit. I think if publishers knew now what you have to offer, they would descend on you in a swarm. Much of it is truly sensational. You'll have to hide away once the book is out. I wonder what June will make of it if she ever reads it. It's a Goya portrait. It would make me turn over in the grave. Funny, eh? A side note about Rue Blondel, which was the site of a whorehouse Neen visited with her husband, Hugh Geiler. But since Geiler did not want to be in the diary, she substituted Miller for him. But let's continue. On February 17, 1965, Miller writes, Dear Annie East, I'm now at page 470. The first thing I wonder about is, do you expect the publisher to bring out all these 900 pages at once in a single volume, or two or three volumes? I think it's better for the reader's sake to allow an interval of time between volumes. No one can take the whole biz at one blow. Too intense. Too compact. I should point out here that Neen took Miller's advice. The diary was published in seven volumes over a 14-year period. 
Miller continues, All in all, what impression I imagine the reader will get of you is that of a most complicated individual, and perhaps of a solopsis, one about whom the world revolves. No matter how clearly you analyze people and situations, one is left mystified. One little thought. Several times you quote me as saying, Life is foul. I doubt this extremely. I may have said the world is rotten, and people too, but not life itself. Quite a difference. It's an overpowering dose. There's a risk occasionally that your utter seriousness verges on the ridiculous. Watch for this in editing. Repetitious phrases augment this danger. On February 24th, Miller warns Neen. About June, changing names is no use if the character can be identified. Why don't you ask your editor his opinion, and then some reputable lawyer? She ought to be flattered, but with a woman, who can tell? And then he adds, Just in these 900 pages, you've shown yourself to be a most complicated individual. You will arouse endless controversy. You're not just a contradiction, but a thousand ones. On March 2nd, Miller writes, Dear Annie East, the other night I finished a diary. It's a tremendous dose to take in one lump. All the material on rank and your acting as an analyst, very exciting. Although I think you end on a weak note, the end occurs before somewhere, I'd say. All you touch on with regard to your early life in New York is also very moving. Wish there were more of it. I come away with the impression that no experience, no relationship ever offers you complete satisfaction. You seem insatiable. One little item. You mentioned my affair with my first wife's mother. Better cut this out. I'm in a spot now as to what to do about certain passages in my own books which are of a libelous, slanderous nature. Don't worry about rejections. I feel in my bones that you are soon and suddenly going to become a figure of great prominence in the literary world, like you snuck in by the back door. Good luck. Of course, these letters were not only prophetic, but also a great relief to Neen. With Miller's endorsement, the project could continue. But there were other diary characters to consider, and one of them was Neen's cousin and childhood crush, Eduardo Sanchez. Anyone who has read Neen's unexpurgated diaries knows that Sanchez was a strong influence in Neen's early life, often acting as an interpreter of her complicated feelings and attitudes, and sometimes as a sort of conscience. They had even attempted to consummate their mental attraction for each other despite Sanchez's homosexuality. Eduardo, who as a young man was gentle and poetic, had a very difficult personal life, which, by 1975, had left him a bitter and unfulfilled man. Need knew she would have a battle on her hands in convincing him to let her keep him in the diary. She wrote to him on February 1st, Weigh things as an artist, as a thinker, as a personality that should not be buried. I have long ago understood that some of us cannot bear to expose oneself and also to respect the image you have. Others' image of us is never matched to our own. 
Sanchez responded in a letter to Nin. From your last letter, I am convinced that you do need me and want me in your book. All right, send me a copy and let's see. But then he added, Let me repeat again that now I'm an old man with chilled blood. I look at my homosexual interludes as a series of aberrations ending in miserable failures. I have been a complete and utter idiot. So the less said about it, the better. Of course, if I'm going to remain in your diary, my homosexual tendency must or should be implied. But I will not allow any discussion of my relationships, my confessions, and so on. Ad nauseum. See? Ana Eastneen sent Eduardo her diary. She braced for his response. She had no idea, though, what was coming. Sanchez writes, You succeeded so well in eliminating Hugh that I am encouraged to believe that with just a little effort you could erase me completely. Do try again. I know you don't want criticism, but just the same, you remind me of people who are colorblind. On the East, you are vulgarity blind, and when you try to be vulgar or to imitate Miller, the result is so out of color, so preposterous, so utterly vulgar, that instead of shocking, it dismays. That description of your and Henry's visit to the whorehouse is awful. When you try to describe Miller's vulgarity literally, and on page 103 you give a string of four-lettered words, the result is a vulgarization of vulgarity, which is preposterous and pitiful. And while we're on the subject, let me advise you that if you use cunt writer once, that should be enough. No, my dear Ani East, I shall be 61 next month. Be realistic. I cannot change my negative pattern. I did not change when I was young. I cannot change now. I am so sorry. So terribly sorry. The name Eduardo Sanchez does not appear in any of the original seven volumes of the Diary of Ana East Nien, but his presence is represented in other forms, sometimes as a woman. As I continued through 1965, I came across a letter from Rebecca West, the English writer Neen idolized, and whom she visited in 1934, dreaming that when they met they would fall in love with each other. Neen devoted several pages of her unpublished diary to the visit, which was her first pilgrimage to a noted female artist, a significant event in the young Neen's life. Naturally, she wanted to include it in the diary. Even in 1965, Neen placed enormous value on her connection with Rebecca West. But in her letter to Neen, dated November 18, 1965, West says, Even after your letter, which made me wish we could talk and I could feel grateful for having known you and be anxious to see you again, I still didn't want that description of your visit to stand. It was too far from what I was feeling at the time. Anyway... I don't believe I like myself enough to have any personal references to me published. Needless to say, Neen was crushed. However, in spite of some of these notable omissions, Volume 1 of the Diary of Ani East Neen was a blockbuster, and it validated all the rejections, suffering, and frustration of Neen's past. It is today, 50 years later, still regarded as one of the greatest character studies in modern literature. 
As I proceed with the transcription of Neen's unpublished diary, I'll be sure to share more discoveries with you soon. This program is sponsored by the recently published Letras Erotica by Ani East Neen, long lost, but now available at Amazon, the iBookstore, and in bookshops worldwide. This has been the Ani East Neen Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.